Welcome to your books in Grateful Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Rebecca Gordon Nesbitt about her new book, To Defend the Revolution is to Defend Culture, the Cultural Policy of the Cuban Revolution. Welcome to What's in Critical Theory. Uh, on this episode, I'm going to be talking with Rebecca Gordon-Nesbitt about her new book, To Defend the Revolution is to Defend Culture, the Cultural Policy of the Cuban Revolution, uh, which was out, is it, is it out this week or, or yeah, next? Or, this no. week, officially. Mm-hmm. Cool, which uh, is an absolutely fascinating book. It's unbelievably rich and detailed. Um, about that moment uh, for cultural policy in Cuba uh, from the sort of uh, mid-1950s through to the late 1970s. But also it has implications for what went before that and what went after as well. It's very, very rich, very detailed. Um, I wonder if we could start, though, if you could tell us a bit about uh, your kind of intellectual background and where the book came from and, and how it developed. Yeah, well, I was working as a curator of contemporary art for about 10 years, um, and this really straddled the kind of cool Britannia era. Mm. So um, I was in London in the mid to late 90s and was there when all the YBA thing was going on. Um, and I saw things gradually changing and tried to do do different things. I, was, I ran a project space in Elephant Castle in the shopping centre in London, which for those of you who don't know, it's a very multicultural area. Um and we try to not just stick to one particular artistic discipline, but be fairly polymathic about it. Um, and then I got a job in Helsinki as a curator again, looking at uh, art in the Nordic countries and relating that a little bit to what was going on here in the UK. Um, and gradually became quite disillusioned, really, about uh, the way that I saw politics shifting and the way that I didn't see the cultural field reacting to it. So it was this kind of absence in the middle of the cultural field in relation to the real world and, and you know, geopolitics that were happening all around us at the time, which became very evident in the, in the George Bush era. Uh, so I decided, and, and at the same time, I noticed that um, wanting to come back to the UK to, to work in the arts, uh, everything had become very corporate, very commercialised. Uh, and I, I was looking around, really trying, wondering if there had been any other models for how to organise culture. Um, so I'd always had a sort of research strand to my practice, and I just decided to elaborate on that and go back to school and start researching cultural policy in, in a completely different history and geography of the Cuban Revolution. And it was just based on a tiny inkling at that point that there might be something interesting to look at there didn't know very much about it at all, didn't speak any Spanish, you know, so it was a, it was a, a, fairly, a big fairly task. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm pleased to say that it, it yielded interesting results. Because it, it's interesting, actually, that um, I suppose that kind of alternative model you'd identified is, is, is the beginning of the book, really, about mm-hmm. um, you, you try and set up a juxtaposition between, on the one hand, uh, the narrative that the book draws around Cuban cultural policy in the revolutionary period, and um, uh, use the phrase as kind of antidote to neoliberalism, but, you know, the kind of broader uh, neoliberal trends within mm-hmm. cultural policy. And I wonder if you could set the scene by telling us a bit about what you mean by that kind of neoliberal cultural policy and then maybe sketch a little bit of how Cuba contrasts with that. Yeah, well, I think neoliberalism is an overused word nowadays, um, but I take it to refer to the ideological project of securing power and resources for a small economic elite. Um, and obviously we see that all around us here. Um, in Cuba, actually, if I can start with Cuba rather mm-hmm. than here. Yeah, yeah, sure. In the 1950s in Cuba, I think 
uh, Cuba was a very early and violent example of this kind of thinking. I mean, we, we would call it imperialism rather than neoliberalism, but um, under the military dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista, uh, it was a very iniquitous re- regime um, which was shored up by the United States. They had a, a sort of neo-colonial relationship to Cuba um, and controlled its sovereignty. And, and a lot of the profits that Cuba generated through the sugar trade, which is fairly monocultural, but also the uh, utilities and mm-hmm. um, telephone company and what have you, they were leached across the Florida Straits. Um, so you, you've got this very unequal relationship already between Cuba and the, and the US. And so the Cuban Revolution started as a campaign of national liberation um, against this iniquitous regime, and it wanted to extricate the island from this neo-colonial relationship with the US and over, overturn the dictatorship. Um, so there wasn't, that, there wasn't the kind of ideology that we associate with the revolution in the beginning, that's important to say. Um, and so when when it triumphed in terms of its uh, being an antidote to neoliberalism, it was obvious that they would have to try and compensate for the elitism that had typified Batista's regime because there was access to resources for only a, huge, a tiny minority of people. So health, education, culture, everything was um, concentrated in the capital, Havana, uh, and only available to a, to a small minority of people who could afford to access those things. So the revolution was committed from the start to, to overcoming that kind of picture. Um, and they uh, expanded education. They, they launched a massive literacy campaign in 1961, uh, taking um, literacy to the furthest corners of the island, teaching peasants to read through a huge um, momentum of, of students and young people. Uh, and they also uh, do- uh, multiplied the education budgets by about tenfold, so um, opened up schools throughout the island to make education available to everybody. And the same thing happened in the cultural field. So um, culture was democratised. Tens of thousands of arts teachers, many of whom had taken part in the literacy campaign, were retrained to disseminate artistic and creative education to the furthest corners of the island again. And what happened was that a huge movement of amateur artists grew out of that, which in its heyday was about a million artists, people participating in the programme in a, in a population of around six million. So a huge campaign. Uh, so that's very democratic, very anti-elitist. And I would say that that really typifies Cuban policy generally, mm-hmm. that it's anti-elitist and anti-imperialist. Um, whereas if you look at the situation here, uh, I would say that only a small minority of people can afford to access a cultural education. Similarly, we find that when we do um, surveys of who attends arts events, even though in the UK it's free to enter most museums and galleries, you still find that it's the same kind of demographics that come back in the, the reasonably well-educated and affluent population of people who go there. So the elitism is still rife in our in our cultural field, I would say, and, and our cultural policy kind of reflects sort of abets that sort of picture. And I mean, there's so much you said that um, that, that we could tease out, um, and, and it's so it's so rich in terms of not just, I guess, you know, kind of funding model question, but there's also questions of, of I guess, what particular theorists might call kind of uh, the governmentality of culture in Cuba, and uh, you know, the kind of broader questions of the, of the role of uh, culture in kind of creating the, the revolutionary state and I think that is maybe uh, an interesting question to develop this comparison in terms of the exact relationship between the Cuban state and culture. Mm-hmm. Well the first thing to say is is that it took many years for the entity that we might think about as the Cuban state to actually consolidate itself. It was far from a homogeneous edifice at the start. It was um, 
it was made up really of three different tendencies. So you had Fidel Castro's 26th of July movement. You had the former um, Socialist Party, essentially, which was very closely aligned to Moscow and a student movement as well. And these three things came together under the revolutionary banner. And the 26th of July movement movement and the communist tendency were the the more vocal of those three um, tendencies. Uh, The communist strand had barely taken any part in the insurrection, which is significant because they couldn't lay claim to much of the revolutionary Mm. success. Um, Anyway, so uh, almost as soon as the revolution had triumphed, the new very provisional government declared culture to belong to everybody, which, you know, underlies this kind of anti-elitist tendency. Um, and what they did was, in addition to the, uh, the, the kind of cultural democratisation programme that I mentioned in terms of participation, they also took all the requisitioned artworks and commissioned new artworks and, and toured them around lots of venues that they were opening up all around the island. So they set up some really key institutions in the first, literally the first few months after the revolution um, came to power. Um, so it could be galleries or it could be cinemas or it could be anything. There was a whole new film industry that was set up. Uh, and a kind of Pan-American cultural house that remain. All the beauty of Cuba is that everything that was set up then more or less remains today, um, including its health service, actually, which ironically was, was built on the, na- the model of the National Health Service, but it still exists. Mm. In, in, it, it is what our National Health Service should look like, in a sense. Um, and so in 1961, when the government was becoming more explicit about its socialist leanings, um, Fidel incited this transition from spectators to creators that I've mentioned, which led to this massive movement of artists. And at the same time, they also provided for international standard professional artistic education. Um, so in, when we think about the relationship between culture and the state, it laid the foundations for a great cultural infrastructure. That was one of the first things that happened. And then during the formative years of cultural policy formation, which, as I've said, lasted until the 1970s, um, many different ideas abounded about what culture was and, and how it should be administered. Um, and that this this was really interesting to me because, again, it's not this kind of edifice. It's it's, it's lots of voices competing to, to shout the loudest and to have their, their views heard and recognised and lots of trial and error and lots of, you know, open, honest debate about what, what it should be. Um, in the beginning, there's a Cuban writer called Ambrosio Fournette who's identified two extremes of these tendencies called dogmatists and liberals. On the dogmatic side, you've got the very orthodox um, members of the, of the Socialist Party. And on the liberal side, you've got the artists who align themselves with the European avant-garde. And there were many clashes very publicly between these two groups, especially in the early 60s. Um, those on the orthodox wing thought that mater- uh, materialism should obliterate any trace of idealism, which they aligned with uh, religion and abstract art, surrealism, and all kinds of general depravity. They couldn't abide any any trace of idealism. Um, I like that term, general depravity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they argued that socialist realism was the only true art and that all art should be both mimetic and didactic, very educational. Um, and the so-called liberals reacted very badly to this and saw the spectre of Stalinism looming over the island and predicted the end of culture. So you can see how mm. that didn't sit so well alongside each other. Um uh, and what I tended to find was that whenever Cuba's relationship with the Soviet Union was strengthened, the orthodox tendencies were emboldened. So you've got those sort of flashpoint waiting to happen there. And at the same time, almost a third way, artists, writers and filmmakers, some of whom were party members and, and all of whom were working within the revolution, 
advocated a more dialectical approach uh, in which all aesthetic tendencies could thrive, you know, through a process of acceptance and critique. And it was this ethos that eventually thrived um, with the state recognising culture as intrinsically valuable and inherently revolutionary, which is where we end up. Um, but yeah, we'll probably talk a bit more. About yeah, I, I, I'm actually, I think now would be a really good moment to, to sort of think about how that plays out in a specific art form or, or cultural practice. And uh, one of the things you do quite early on in the book is think about cinema mm-hmm. and the relationship between not just kind of, um, I guess, a sort of a, um, cinema as a you know, kind of an act of consumption of films, but actually um, cinema as a, as a cultural system that includes the visual arts through things like um, film posters and mm-hmm, stuff like yeah. this. Yeah, film's an interesting example because it was one of the things that was really talked about before the revolution came to power. So... You had a, a group of artists and filmmakers, and filmmakers were very pro- prominent within that organisation, a cultural society. Um, and they were already formulating a kind of alternative cultural policy, even while the insurrection was being fought at the other end of the island. Uh, and they they thought that there was enough in terms of raw talent and ideas and um, potential there to create a, an entirely indigenous film industry that was separate from anything else that was going on in the world. They were influenced by the kind of Italian New Wave um, and they, they thought seriously, long and hard, about how, how they might structure the film industry. Uh, and one of the filmmakers from, from that time was, was then given responsibility for formulating a new, new industry after the revolution. So from 1959 onwards, uh, a new institute was set up which was responsible for commissioning films. Initially, they made very educational documentaries um, to try and explain the pace of change that was going on all around. And then eventually they um, managed to commission more lateral kind of narrative explorations. And you've mentioned other art forms came into this as well. So, yes, the poster movement was incredibly strong and it was, it's brilliant. I don't know if anybody's seen the, uh, the sort of silkscreen posters that have come out of Cuba, but it's well worth looking on the internet mm. to have just to get... But also in the book as well. The book yes, is, is really right, richly yeah. illustrated. Yeah. Um, to, the aesthetics are completely different from anything we associate with a kind of Hollywood film poster. They, they move away from the idea of a central star and they, they try and encapsulate the subject of the film in a, in a very witty sort of visual aphorism, um, which I think is incredible. You know, it's a very powerful message to, to encapsulate um, uh, the kind of yeah, the ethos of the film industry. And this new institute wasn't just responsible for commissioning film, but also disseminating it. And so they... Um, reclaimed all the old cinemas and renovated them and opened new ones. Um, and in places where it wasn't possible to have a, a fixed cinema building, uh, including very rural areas, they set up a mobile cinema programme, taking um, screening equipment around the countryside and showing films in the furthest corners of the island. Um, so, yeah, pretty pioneering. And the idea was that um, the profit motive would, have, would be taken out of the film industry, as it was in many other art forms. So. Um, the cost of attending cinema was kept deliberately low, and even today, it costs about the same as the price of an egg to go to the cinema or the ballet or, or whatever. So, in, in fact, that, that's a, a good moment to consider uh, two separate things. Actually, one is around the kind of the, the funding model, yeah. um, and how this might differ from, uh, say, British or American mm-hmm. uh, funding models. But then the other is, is I guess, uh, what you talk about in the book as being the kind of. Uh, place culture is given at the very heart of the material development of the island. So if we maybe come on to that um, after we think about how funding works. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so the funding model in Cuba, well, it's changed a bit recently since the collapse of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, um, which has combined with the hardening of the US embargo to um, seriously diminish cultural funding, and, and some of the institutions have actually become less dependent on, on the state. But if we think about the period from 1959 to 1989, which is what I'm really looking at in the book, the state was entirely responsible for funding culture. So all galleries, museums, cinemas, theatres were wholly supported by the state. And as I've said, this removed the profit motive from the cultural field, meaning that international quality uh, art forms could be both produced and and disseminated around the island. Um, And... State support has consistently been underwritten by an understanding that culture is a form of social production. So that's really important. When we look at cultural policy, we have to ask ourselves how the state conceives of culture, because obviously it's not going to support it if it doesn't feel that it's it's beneficial for society in some way. Um, We'll come on to how we view that. But in in Cuba, talking about art as a form of social production, so that's, you know, it's, it's like any other kind of production within society. Um, And in this case, the product of this social process was taken to be human happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, And by and large, so that relates to sort of spiritual development, human development. Um, And it was it was actually not material development. So it was taken to be distinct from material development, but equally important to it. Um, So you arguably a revolutionary country coming out of underdevelopment is going to prioritise its material development. But actually, Cuba didn't do that to, to the exclusion of everything else. And really held up culture and spiritual development to be its equal. I mean, it gives a, a particular position for the artistic and cultural practitioner within the creation of the state. And, mm-hmm. and, and as you say, I really yeah. like that phrase, the kind of economic and social responsibilities for Cuban uh, yeah. producers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the same time, culture had, had a part to play in lifting the population out of underdevelopment. Um, and and that, that's where the social responsibility of the artist really came from, the idea that it wasn't enough to be this kind of um, ivory tower uh, intellectual or artist. Um, you had a responsibility to um, acculturating the population, so taking your artwork to the public and the tools with which to interpret that as well. Um, and indirectly then, uh, material development was thought to arise. So... Um, which brings us on to the situation here, um, I would say that that's the exact inverse of what we have here. So if we take the UK of the, as an example of, of the capitalist model, in our lifetime we've witnessed the erosion of state funding for culture and its replacement with funding from the private sector. And what we've seen is that arts organisations are set up now in competition with each other for small amounts of state funding. Artists are increasingly dependent on the private market for sales of their artwork to survive. Um, and so this is this is really kind of rampant free market capitalism in the cultural field. And we find ourselves in a situation then in which the market becomes the main arbiter of value. And we've lost sight of any kind of, if we ever had it in the first place, any kind of human value to culture, which is exactly the opposite of how Cuba has framed things. And it's only now with the advent of projects like the Cultural Value Project that the Arts and Humanities Research Council has been running that we're actually starting to return to questions of the individual and social value of culture. I, I wonder if I can ask you two things uh, again that you know you address sort of uh, towards the middle of the book, and that's around um, a key difference um, of a sense of, of kind of artistic reward around the copyright system mm-hmm. um, and its sort of removal uh, in Cuban in the period in which you're interested in, mm-hmm. and then a question of kind of uh, the conception of artistic freedom um, and how that took on a very different kind of position okay. in Cuba. Yeah. 
So in terms of copyright, well, before the revolution, copyright's the same as it was the world over, um, with intellectual property laws covering all the main branches of the arts, literature, arts, drama and music works. Uh, and in 1969, Fidel Castro suggested that the, the existence of these intellectual property laws deprived ordinary Cubans of accessing some of the great works of culture, mainly literature. Um, and if they lifted these laws, then people would have a chance to access these. So from 1967 to 75, copyright was lifted. Um, and this opened the floodgates for the liberal reproduction of, of great cultural works, as I say, mainly, mainly in print. Uh, and at the same time, copyright was renounced for Cuba's artists. And they willingly did this because they didn't particularly rely on, on royalties mm-hmm. for their survival anyway. Um, and understood that it would be for the benefit of everybody if this was the case. And even when intellectual property rights were reinstated in the 70s, this was made subordinate to social needs. So if a cultural work is deemed beneficial for society, then society has the right to access that without any dispute about money, as long as the person who originated it is credited as its author. So that's that's an interesting thing, because obviously um, copyright is central to the whole kind of creative industry discourse that we have here. You have to be able to enforce intellectual property in order to have a kind of commodity-based culture. And you also asked about uh, artistic freedom. freedom. Yeah. yeah, well, um, freedom in general has been used as a stick with which to beat Cuba, I would say. Um, and David Harvey's written very convincingly about how the founders of neoliberalism set freedom up as one of their central tenets, which enabled them to argue in favour of individualism and against any form of collective action or state intervention. And obviously Cuba is based on state intervention and collective action. So, you know, freedom inevitably comes up. Um, in the capitalist world, of course, we know that there's limits to freedom. I'm sure everybody who's listening can think of examples of, of explicit censorship and also self-censorship with the media patrolling the boundaries of what's acceptable. Um, now, in Cuba, long discussions have actually been held about the idea of artistic freedom, um, both freedom of form and of content. Um, when it came to freedom of form, as we've seen, the dogmatic current wanted to impose certain morals, um, you know, aesthetic uh, currents like uh, socialist realism and in 1965 Che Guevara had to step in and, and dismiss the idea of socialist realism being the art of the revolution and he described it as the kind of frozen art that only functionaries can understand um, and at the same time the liberal faction was made strenuous attempts to convince everybody that they had total artistic freedom and could pursue any kind of line that they wanted but that was then met with um, accusations of escapism if people pursued this pure kind of abstract thought um, so that's so much for freedom of form. And then when it came to freedom of content, the government expressed a desire, in theory, for absolutely free expression. Um, but this was made contingent on the extent to which the revolution felt itself to be under threat. And in 1961, Fidel established a general line for this, um, making provision for all artists who worked within the revolution, but not giving any kind of truck to people who were against the revolution. So anybody who wasn't counter-revolutionary, was free to work as an artist within the revolution. Uh, and at the same time, some of the leading artists and, and writers within the revolution have acknowledged that freedom isn't an abstract thing. It, it's very tangible and it, and it works in relation to the material reality that surrounds them. Um, and in, in fact, many of them, due to their loyalty to the revolution, have um, understood that the country has faced a lot of external aggression and realise that they have a responsibility to defend the revolution against that kind of aggression, um, even to the point of sacrificing their artistic freedom, if necessary. 
Um, but that's not to say that there hasn't been critique and healthy kind of discourse within the revolution, because of course there has, and um, usually to undertaken from the perspective of informing the revolutionary process and trying to improve it as it as it progresses. Um, the, the interesting thing um, about that relationship with the state is obviously the, um, I guess the kind of the, the rocky road that cultural policy takes um, in terms of you know you've alluded to. Uh, Cuba being sometimes close to the uh, USSR, sometimes further away. Um, and one of the things you talk about in the book uh, is both the kind of uh, pivotal uh, year of 1966, but then also how the late 60s and early 70s might be described as, as the kind of the, the grey period, as you call it, Cuban mm-hmm. cultural policy. So I wonder if you could tell the story of 66, why it matters, and then say perhaps what the uh, the limits or the, um, the kind of uh, the problems around uh, cultural policies, the revolution developed into the 1970s. Yeah, so we'll take it chronologically. Um, you asked about 1966, and that really stands out as the year when the US woke up to the possibility of a continent-wide revolution in Latin America. And in May 66, Robert Kennedy went on television to warn his countrymen that continental revolution was coming whether they liked it or not. Um, and so the US didn't just sit by and wait for this to happen. They stepped up various actions in the area by supporting military coups and engaging in ideological warfare. And of course, that inevitably had an impact on the cultural field. Um, and the US had very aggressive strategies to try and uh, co-opt intellectuals who'd been supportive of the revolution. Uh, they also, it's well known that the CIA set up the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which uh, operated out of 35 different countries and published 20 different magazines all aggressively geared towards um, trying to overcome revolutionary thinking. Um, There was one particular magazine called Mundo Nuevo, which translates as New World, which subtly challenged the revolutionary outlook in Latin America. So that was was one of the pivotal uh, publications. And there was also something called the Alliance for Progress, which offered grants and set up conferences in the area. And because artists in Latin America were aesthetically quite close to the Western mainstream. It wasn't beyond the realms of possibility that they might actually be influenced by some of these offers and take them up and be kind of assimilated or co-opted. And one very high-profile instance of this in 1966 was that of the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, who had been very much kind of committed to a left-wing approach, uh, and he suddenly was granted a visa to go and attend a conference in New York which caused a lot of consternation in Latin America um, because it suggested that the American authorities suddenly believed that he'd changed his beliefs. Uh, So the Cubans sent an open letter uh, to Pablo Neruda challenging him on his decision. Um, And the the journal that I mentioned, Mundo Nuevo, seized upon this as a rift between Cuba and the Latin American intellectuals and really caused that rift to widen. So that was significant. Um, and then we have the 1968 Cultural Congress in Havana, which I'd maybe like to say a few words yeah, about, yeah, because course, that's, yeah. um, that's, a, that's a significant and very positive moment um, before things turn a little bit dark. Uh, so that was staged in January 1968 after a couple of years of planning. Um, it was a huge international congress with more than 600 intellectuals from 67 different countries convening on Havana to tackle the problems of what was then called the Third World. Um, and this was really... The, Latin America's response to the ideological challenge that was being posed by imperialism in general and the United States in particular. 
And it was staged just a few months after Che Guevara had been assassinated in Bolivia. So it was a very heightened moment of history. Um, and in fact, the fact that they were staging this conference represented a shift of the Bolivarian revolution from the battlefield to the ideological field. Um, and beyond this, by advocating a, a concerted anti-imperialist response across not only Latin America, but also Asia and Africa, um, with the full cooperation of the European intellectuals who attended, Cuba was really making a play for another form of communism that bypassed the Soviet Union because the idea of continental revolution was something that the, the Communist International wasn't supporting at that time. And in cultural terms, the Congress implicated artists and writers in, in these liberation struggles that were being enacted in Vietnam at the time and beyond, and in the recovery and development of national cultures. Um, it also considered the role of intellectuals in the formation of what Che Guevara called the new man, which is maybe something we could talk about, um, which was predicated on radical social transformation. It harnessed cultural artefacts, the process of consciousness raising, um, and it advocated a dynamic and mutually beneficial relationship between artistic and political vanguards, which is something that hadn't really kind of been achieved with any great success historically. Uh, and finally, it placed intellectuals on high alert in the face of these attempts to co-op them and even suggested that they go so far as to develop antibodies against any kind of imperialist penetration. Um, so that was the real high point of international cultural policy that Cuba was central to. Um, and in August 1968, so just seven months after the Cultural Congress of Havana, Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. Uh, and although Fidel was very critical of this on Cuban television, on an international stage, since he was part of the communist ambit, he couldn't oppose this vocally. Um, and unfortunately, that had the side effect of really diminishing the prestige that Cuba had in the eyes of the world and, and um, brought actually a, a crisis in the left on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And in turn, that forced Cuba closer to the Soviet Union and turned attention inwards and more orthodox forces were emboldened at that time. Um, the next thing that happened was that in the autumn of that year, in October, the Cuban poet, Alberto Padilla, won a prize run by the Writers and Artists Union for a, a collection of fairly politically ambiguous poetry. Um, and amongst accusations of vote rigging and all sorts, um, and the union published his prize-winning entry, but they printed a disclaimer in the front of the book saying that this wasn't appropriate to a revolutionary situation. Um, and what happened then was that the Revolutionary Armed Forces, um, which was the, the, the army, essentially, um, their magazine published a series of, a series of articles under a pseudonym, one of which was very critical of Padilla's work and accused him of trying to look for an excuse to create a scandal against the revolution. Um, so a couple of years went by, and, and uh, after that, Padilla was arrested on charges of counter-revolution for a novel that he was writing this time. Um, and this caused an international outcry and prompted a letter to be sent to Fidel Castro that was signed by 54 intellectuals, many of whom had been supportive to the revolution before that. Um, in turn, Fidel angrily responded at a conference that had been staged um, and rejected the interventions of these bourgeois pseudo-intellectuals who dared to criticise the revolution without really understanding the kind of challenges that it faced. Um, Padilla was released from prison and he made this kind of faux Stalinist confession um, to, again, I think, be very provocative. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, another angry letter was sent to Fidel, uh, even more strongly worded than the first. Some people who signed the first letter actually refused to sign the second one because it had gotten beyond the joke at this point. 
but nonetheless it created a rupture between Cuba and the rest of the world. And then somewhat inexplicably, the person who suspected of writing the anonymous articles in the army magazine was appointed to be head of the National Council of Culture, which was the body that had been set up to interpret revolutionary cultural policy. So somebody who's very much on the orthodox wing of the party and um, whatever is, is appointed to become the main man, really, in the cultural field. And so for the next five years, which have been described as the five grey years, he, he presided over a very mediocre programme that was centred on encouraging new intellectuals um, that were absolutely committed to the revolutionary project at the expense of artists who had matured before the revolution, um, many of whom were actually persecuted and removed from their posts in universities or whatever and deprived of funding to make their cultural work. Um, so that was a really dark period, and, and people have spoken openly about those those years, and it, it's derided within Cuba as well as being a, a really bleak period. But it's important to say that these controversies were largely confined to film and literature uh, and theatre to some extent, art forms that had the potential to reach wide audiences, and, and the visual arts escaped relatively unscathed, actually. And one of the pioneering institutions was able to stage a series of meetings between Latin American artists during during the 70s which picked up on some of the themes from the Cultural Congress of Havana um, about building antibodies against imperialism and artists being part of a, a kind of natural uh, sorry a cultural uh, national renovation project or liberation and renovation mm-hmm. I mean you talk towards the end of the book how uh, Cuban cultural policy sort of emerges um, in, in the early to late seventies, mm-hmm. um, and, and that I think is a, is a, is a fascinating period um, in contrast uh, to the Great Period. But I wonder if we can conclude with what I think is the kind of um, theoretical statement uh, that the book closes with, mm-hmm. and this is the idea of uh, not just kind of taking uh, the revolutionary period as a particular model um, that might be kind of you know. Um, grafted on to other uh, contexts, but rather the kind of creation of, of what you call a Marxist-humanist form of cultural policy. And I wonder yeah. if you could say what that is. Yeah, certainly. Um, shall I just briefly mention how Cuba emerged from the Great Yeah, yeah. Um, Because that's significant. I think that's where that's where this kind of Marxist-humanist policy was, was consolidated. Mm-hmm. There are two significant events. One of them is that the first, uh, the, the governing party, which by now was called the Cuban Communist Party or the PCC, had its first congress in 1975. And by then they could see the mistakes that had been made during the grey years and prior to that, generally with this National Council of Culture. Um, And so it enabled them to revisit ideas around culture. Um, And that's really where I think this Marxist-Humanist policy came into its own um, because it was acknowledged that that culture was inherently revolutionary without having to be didactic and what have you. Um, and the second significant d- departure was the replacement with the National Co- of the National Council of Culture with a Ministry of Culture under a very enlightened man who'd been previously Minister of Education and was well known as a Marxist humanist philosopher. Um, so right there you've got the kind of personnel that, that paves the way for this kind of Marxist humanist cultural policy to triumph, this kind of third way, if you like, um, between <laughs> dogmatism and, and liberalism. Um, hopefully no one in Cuba will be listening to this. They would hate those parallels with any kind of Tony Blair philosophy. Um, but uh, to, to return to the question of what Marxist humanist cultural policy might be when viewed through the lens of Cuba, 
Well, a humanistic reading of Marxism implies a philosophy of practice directed towards human liberation and social transformation. Um, So if we think about that in the Cuban case, in terms of human human liberation, the aesthetic experience in itself has been uh, embraced as a route towards human liberation and spiritual fulfilment, as we saw. And as we've seen it, it's consistently involved both passive spectatorship and very active participation in cultural activity, um, cultural production. Um, And and more generally, I would say that Marxist humanist cultural policy in Cuba is underwritten by a very Gramscian understanding that culture belongs to everyone and that nobody has the right to, or the exclusive right to manual labour. In other words, everybody has the right to to carry out manual labour. Uh, and that, that really under, underwrites all the anti-elitist programmes that I've mentioned. Um, and beyond that, as we saw, it's been bound up with this idea of escaping from years of neo, neo-colonial and prior to that colonial rule um, and engendering a population capable of, of engaging in wider social transformation. So that's really at the heart of it, the human liberation and social transformation. And beyond this, we've seen that during the formative two decades of cultural policy, Many ideas circulated about the kind of culture that was appropriate to the revolutionary situation. Um, and I argue that the Marxist humanist position finally re- resolved itself at this cultural congress, uh, sorry, the, the first congress of the PCC, by really understanding finally that culture didn't have to be any particular form or even any particular content. It, it was in itself inherently revolutionary. Um, and in terms of educational art, you know, the, the idea of the, the orthodox wing wanting art to be inherently educational, the case, I think, has really convincingly been made in Cuba that art educates us by heightening our receptivity to the world around us. So it, it shows us how to look and experience the world rather than telling us exactly what we should be looking at and what we should be experiencing. And in turn, that implies that art is a very particular form of knowledge, um, it, it embodies social reality rather than just reflecting it, so it goes beyond the idea of art as a mirror. Um, but it provides insights into the human condition in ways that can't really be judged by the criteria of other disciplines. So that, for me, is, is the Marxist humanist's cultural policy. I wonder if, if, if we can finish off just, just very quickly by um, getting a sense of, of what you're doing next. Obviously, uh, you were saying before we started, you've got um, an international book tour um, ahead of you, uh, particularly talking about the book in America. Um, in terms of your kind of research agenda, will you be doing stuff around developing um, this kind of more uh, fully thought out idea of Marxist humanist cultural policy? I know you do a lot of work around uh, the relationship between health um, and arts and culture, or are you going to do something completely different? I think I'd have to say something completely different. Cool. Yeah. Um, because uh, this was really to look at the way that things have been done somewhere else Mm. and try and apply that maybe to other situations. Um, But what I'd like to look at now is how the capitalist model uh, fails us, you know, what what the sort of pitfalls are in following that line of of logic. Um, I want to look at, uh, if possible, conduct a social network analysis of the cultural field. That's a very ambitious project, I know, because it's a very dynamic um, field, but it's all um, very international. Um, but starting small, looking at publicly funded organisations in the private art market and how those two things interact, just to see how where the potential for corruption exists, for example, within the art, art world, um, in terms of tax evasion and all these kinds of loopholes that you know, and in terms of recent struggles that have been 
very visible in London, certainly around the privatisation of, of public space. Um, there was a struggle recently around the National Gallery and the outsourcing of, of gallery guides to a private company. You know, it's all this kind of thing is what I'm interested in looking at. Fantastic. Let's listen to new books in critical theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Rebecca Gordon Nesbitt about her new book, Defend the Revolution Against the Defense Culture, the Cultural Policy of the Cuban Revolution.